Hello, everyone. In this week's personalization outbreak, we switch from healthcare to education. Last week, Terry Fontenot took us inside the mind of a healthcare leader during times of crisis. Now, this week, our guests will take us inside the mind of a head of school and share the implications of how the COVID-19 pandemic is forcing real-time reinvention of educational institutions. Patrick McConnett is the head of school at St. John's Episcopal School in Rancho Santa Margarita, California. Patrick is a sports enthusiast, but his true passion is teaching and education. During his college years, he was the only English major on the football team and would oftentimes help his teammates with their papers and thesis. Today, Patrick will share some of the challenges and opportunities that educators are encountering right now and how this crisis will influence the evolution of education moving forward. Our co-host, Dr. Scott Lacey, will also share his perspective as the Associate Dean of the College of Arts and Science at Fairfield University, as well as giving his anthropological lessons about connectivity, expanding our conversation timeline back to the cultural establishment of the handshake. Now, I'm for sure am one that is not only missing that handshake, but also giving hugs too. Let's get started. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. I just got to know Patrick about 10 months ago, and it feels like years. In fact, I think you'll feel that way too. You know, when I first met Patrick, he started by telling me that when he attended Claremont uh, McKenna College, that he was the starting center of the football team. Now, Patrick, tell us about your football career and how did this influence your educational aspirations? Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't know how many uh, heads of school there are that have a, a former football background, but um, you know, the team sports were a huge part of my life growing up, and I was lucky enough to be able to uh, continue that on in college. And I'm um, not sure if, uh, Scott, you uh, know much about Claremont McKenna, but it's a school that's yeah. pretty well known for its uh, economics, government, and international relations programs. So naturally, I was an English major. Um, and uh, I, was act- I was the only English major on our football team. And uh, I found myself oftentimes after practice meeting with guys and helping them proofread their papers or uh, editing their theses or, or anything like that. And um, I think that's probably one of the points where that seed of just really enjoying teaching and, and helping mm-hmm. others from an academic standpoint uh, started up. And, um, and I, I just really enjoyed it. And while I was a student there, my work-study job was working in their admissions office. And that got me into uh, working in college admissions after I had graduated. And uh, from there, I was lucky enough to move over to working at, a, at the high school level. Uh, at a school called Phoenix Country Day School in Phoenix, Arizona, which is my hometown. Um, And uh, uh, spent the last 12 years there before coming out here to 
St. John's and, and, and taking this position as, as head of school. And so um, I, I try at, at every now and again to shrug off the fact that people laugh at me when they say you played offensive line because I'm not 275 <laughs> pounds anymore. Um, but, uh, but I think that, that mentality of just really working as a team and having uh, a singular mission, whether it's moving the ball down the field or um, taking steps into these unknown uh, times here from a school standpoint, um, it's, that's why we get into things like education, of this desire to work with and connect with others in real genuine ways. So um, still a big football fan, um, but I also <laughs> never let my son play tackle football. So you got that going too. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, th thanks for connecting that dot because I never asked you about that and uh, I can see how it makes sense. So yeah. talk about team sports um, and I'll bring it down a little bit because it's clear that, you know, we've all been affected by this COVID-19 crisis and it's been one that uh, it's affected us all uh, in such a deep, uh, at, a, at such a deep personal level. And as I've heard one say before, uh, it's a crisis where no one was and has been exempt. Um, so I know one thing that you and Scott have in common is that not only you're in academia, but you've had to turn your institutions overnight into full-time uh, online institutions. Um, how's that been? I mean, what have been some of the key learnings, Patrick? Uh, those things that maybe you would have wished that you would have been better prepared for. And just as importantly, what have been some of the new innovations and or the accelerated thinking that has emerged from this process? Uh, God, I could spend the next few hours on, on that question alone. Um, it's, been, it's been challenging uh, and exciting. Um, and, and I think at least in our case, we had the benefit of trying to watch the, 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 the coming storm, so to speak, um, being in Southern California, um, as early as, you know, late December, early January, I remember um, coming home from work and speaking to my wife and saying to her, we're going to have to close the school. And, um, and she was like, no way, this, this couldn't possibly be. Um, but as we continue to watch things and see how um, the Pacific Northwest was impacted, uh, moving down south through the Bay Area and, and then to L.A., it, it allowed us as a, a community to really um, read those trend lines and say, wow, this is, this is going to be happening. So when we closed in, in early to mid-March, um, we had already been planning on it for a couple of weeks as an administrative team and talking to our faculty and having frequent face-to-face -face conversations with our faculty around how we're planning and, and setting our standards for what's to come. Um, I, I'm also really blessed to be a part of a community that um, innovation is a key part of our school's mission. Uh, it's stated in the mission that we always try to balance uh, tradition and innovation. Um, and that as a school community, we've overgone a number of changes over the course of recent years. So there was already uh, some good evidence of a growth mindset amongst our faculty and staff. Mm -hmm. um, but I'll, I'll admit it threw everybody for a loop the minute that we said, okay, we're going to do all this and now we're going to do it online. And we're going to do it through video conferencing and it's going to have to also engage four-year-olds or 14-year-olds and um, how to do that in an age-appropriate and developmentally appropriate way um, 
for all these years that we've been reading about the dangers of screen time and yet somehow pivoting <laughs> towards this as being a, a key component of it has been hard. And um, I think from a leadership standpoint, what was really helpful was engaging our community um, in trying to define what our guiding principles were going to be in this new environment. Mm. One of the things that St. John's is especially well known for is our student and teacher connections. Um, and so we wanted to prize that first and foremost. Mm. Uh, and so we said, you know, perhaps other places are going to be sending home worksheets or packets or, or doing something passively. We were going to seek out every opportunity to make sure that our kids are connecting with teachers because it's that person, it's that personalization that, that is really important for us yeah. as, as a school. Um, so Patrick, that, and, can you, before you continue, can you maybe share yeah. with our listeners and, and viewers, tell us a little bit about St. John's. Yeah, yeah it's, sorry. That's a good framework for it. So St. John's is um, an independent school. We're, Episcopal, uh, we're an Episcopal school um, here in, in Orange County, and we serve students um, as early as uh, eight weeks old uh, all the way through eighth grade. We have about 425 total students in our community, 318 families, um, and we've been around for 30 years. And so um, the hallmark, I think, uh, through line within those 30 years is about having really deep engaging relationships with our students and that comes academically it certainly comes through on a faith basis though it's not an expectation that all of our families are Episcopal or, or even um, have their own religious viewpoints but um, I, I think that that's some of the really exciting pieces that we that we dig into mm -hmm. um, and we also over the course of the last six seven years have really developed our teaching and learning pedagogy through a, a steam mindset and mm -hmm. and that I think has helped break down some of the the previous academic silos around things. Um, and it's been a real asset to us as, as we moved into this new um, remote learning model. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick. So um, before you jump in, Scott, just a quick yeah. question. I mean, as you go through something um, like this, so it was never planned for. I mean, we didn't, uh, we didn't expect this. Uh, yeah. and, and as you approach families and, and students and uh, just the community at large. I mean, again, not to go deep uh, into this, Patrick, but what did you learn about people? I mean, not just within the institution, but, you know, throughout the community, because, and the reason I ask this question is that, you know, I've often learned, learned myself, and I think we all recognize this, but adversity truly reveals who your strongest allies are. And, and it's not that people don't care or they don't want to engage. Um, but things change when things, when our routines are broken, when more is maybe expected of us as a parent or uh, as a student, or even more of what's expected from your own institution. Um, so what have you, what did you learn about people? I think for me, from a, a personal standpoint, uh, as well as a, a leadership standpoint, I think it's continued to underscore that everybody is constantly wired to seek genuine connections and mm. authenticity and that opportunity to be able to see say i see you i hear you i understand you we might not always agree um but but to be able to to have that that validation that understanding is really important um and that's that's come through in innumerable ways during this time because our our most default ways of connecting with others through school or work or whatever it might be have all been severed and so we're trying to rebuild those connections and find those authentic points and um hmm. and that's been an, i think a big adjustment for everybody and 
So, um, so, so Patrick, how do you hold on to those connections? That's a great point. How do you hold on to them? I mean, and, yeah. and, and I'm not pinpointing you and your team yeah. in St. John's, but you know, this has been part of, I think everybody's struggle is, yeah. is how do you hold on to connections? Because in the end, there will be a next normal, whatever that will be. And so we're going to have to find our way back to that connection. Uh, so how do, how do you find the best way to connect in the interim? Uh, it's, I think it, it requires a whole lot of patience and, and trying and, and, and sometimes failing in, in new ways to connect. Um, uh, I think we're all becoming quick experts on Zoom and, and other items like that. Um, yeah. But uh, I, I, I think trying to meet people where they're at. And there's some of, of my team um, and some of my own family who are quick on a text and that's their way of connecting. And there's other people where it's like, no, you got to pick up the phone and you got to speak and you got to hear each other's voice. Yeah. Um, and, and an email won't suffice. And, um, but I also think that there's opportunities here within all of this that we're all learning as a society that there are ways to find that in ways that we hadn't utilized prior. Um, my, my friends from college and I uh, recently started up uh, catching in on a Zoom every Saturday night for an hour or two and playing a game of poker or just talking about kids and families and all that stuff. And it's something that we could have just as easily done before all of this, hmm. but the opportunity that arose and our collective learning as, yeah. as a, as a group said, of course we'll do this. And, and so whether it's that or uh, drive by birthdays and um, online baby showers, things that we've all experienced in the last week or so, like yeah. that's, there's, there's new ways to find those connections and it, it will feel weird, but it's also better than nothing. And, and, and we'll certainly kind of point towards those things that, that allow us to find those, those genuine spots. That, that's so well put, Patrick. And, and you know, I, I actually believe that we're, we're finding a connection uh, in vulnerability. I think we're all truly, we're, we're, this is forcing us all to get to know people uh, in a different way. I mean, even the way we communicate on Zoom uh, with our shorts on and maybe a nice dress shirt on. <laughs> or when kids flying in the room or dogs are barking. I mean, people are getting to know a lot more about our lives uh, from a Zoom perspective, but even yeah. offline, I think we're finding ways to connect because there is such a genuine desire to connect. I think people are just recognizing that it's uh, their own fears or insecurities and our vulnerabilities that are deepening uh, the ability to connect with each other in ways that I think will strengthen uh, relationships in, uh, in the long run. So uh, I appreciate that very much, uh, Patrick. So, so Scott, um, where do you yeah. see some alignment here with what, <laughs> you know, you've experienced at Fairfield or, or just from a, a, from a humanity perspective? Well, first I have to say that I could tell that Patrick is and was a born teacher just by some of the stories, some of the pieces within his stories that he told. I mean, um, ultimately, helping out your buddies on the football team and all that. That's one thing, but I think it happened a lot, a lot earlier than that. I mean, what the way I got to this thought that you are a born teacher is that, that in fact, you said specifically education is, and I wrote it right down. It's a way to connect. Literally your, your, the word connectivity connection is just ringing. If it was a special word for the day, we'd be making a lot of money right now because, because, <laughs> because that's where you're centered. And I think that's where, 
um, that's where the inspiration and sort of the, the energy that's coming off of you about uh, your role, your leadership with this school and this pandemic, as well as just how you got to this place. So, so between the fact that you say education is connectivity is basically a way to connect between that. And then the second thing that I think that I'm gaining already from you as a teacher is that you're talking about education, right? As a fact that, that we're all learning. Uh, what you do, the way you see it naturally, isn't the way that a lot of people see it. And when you say that we're all learning, that's someone saying that, that we need to essentially, like you said in another way, break down the silos. It's not about teacher-student. We're all teacher, we're all student, and the more that we take turns, I think the better we are. So I've got a question for you to learn from how you've managed this pivot, right? Because we at Fairfield U, I, like when you're talking, I'm thinking, yep, that was us, yep, we did that, yep. <laughs> and so so uh, I think it's nice to talk to some kindred spirits here, man. But, um, but thinking about this, if interconnection and connectivity is such a, a crucial part, if not the actual whole role of education, we're very new at this Zooming, and we're very new at online learning as the mode, as opposed to a mode or an alternative mm -hmm. mode. Mm. When online learning becomes the mode of educational delivery, I'm curious, for a connection guy like yourself, what do you see in this rapid forced transition, this mass migration online? What have you seen in your own experience with maybe your colleagues or even friends at your poker game? Where, where has this online connectivity, where has it actually improved our interconnectedness or helped our interconnectedness? But I'd also like to understand, where do you see that we're still lacking? What are we missing from this interconnectivity? Great question. Um, I'll speak, I'll speak for, for my own personal experiences with it. Um, it has definitely forced it to become more deliberate, that there's okay. not just that opportunity to be able to walk past a colleague in the hallway or pop into a classroom when I see something neat going on um, and find those moments where as an educator, I really kind of fill my bucket and, and get excited interacting with kids where <laughs> now I have to say, all right, I've got my two o'clock Zoom meeting where I'm gonna connect with our admin team or um, I'm gonna go jump into this classroom that is uh, happening and, and watch that uh, class taking place. But there's a, there always has to be an active choice at this point. Um, yeah. because of our isolation. Um, and, and, and so that's something I'm learning, uh, uh personally that, that I have to, uh, either schedule it in or require myself to do that. Cause otherwise work or life will, will fill up in, in other ways. So, um, being really deliberate about that is, is important. And the second piece, as far as the ways we're growing or the challenges around that, um, I, I, I do think at least for me, it's, it's still challenging to feel that level of connection through these mm. things um, and, and to read a room, so to speak, in a way that okay. for, for a person like myself who enjoys getting up and chatting with people or, or meeting mm. at a coffee shop, um, the inability to, to watch that, uh, um, uh, you know, the body language or the eye contact or the way a person leans in, um, uh, I, I can tell you right now, I probably had a Zoom meeting last night that was an hour and a half long and maybe 60% of the people you could tell were reading their emails and passively <laughs> listening. Oh, right. And yeah. right. that's challenging when you're trying to connect with people and, uh, hmm. um, and, it's, and it, for whatever reason, um, it, it might not be there. And the, the required follow-up for that of saying, hey, 
saw I, I was hoping that you were going to be a little bit more active in that conversation. It didn't seem like you were all the way there. How can we, how can we work on this? Like the, the time and the effort and the deliberate intent within all of that. It's, um, it just feels like more. I feel like, yeah, generally speaking, we're all working twice as hard for about half the output. And, mm. um, and that can be really fatiguing in the long run. Right. And we're also, I was going to say, we're also dealing right, with all of these other outside or more personal factors within our own lives outside of the professional realm that yeah. those anxieties and those pressures are not just going away because yeah. we're now on Zoom for work, uh, but they're, they're with us. And so I appreciate your comments all the more. What are you thinking over there, Glenn? Now, I'm thinking that inclusion needs to become a growth strategy. <laughs> <laughs> I read a book about that somewhere. <laughs> No, but, but this is what it's become, is that we are becoming much more interconnected in, in finding the need to be more interdependent on each other. Yeah. And especially, uh, as to your point, when maybe people may appear to be engaged, but they're not and working twice as hard to, to get others there. I mean, it, I think that there's a, a clear understanding more than ever that if we're going to say things like we're all in this together, we really need to be, and we need to be intentional about it, which brings me to my next question for you, uh, Patrick, uh, especially as the head of school. Why do you think that people want to know what their leaders are thinking and feeling at a time like this? Well, I think that you and Scott have each touched upon uh, this in, in your own right. Um, I think for a lot of families, school is that stalwart place you always know it's going to be there that's where you drop your kid off that's where you feel this level of safety that i know whenever i hmm. um you know give annabella a kiss uh, as she's getting out of the car or walking into the classroom that she's going to be okay there and when you remove this cultural uh kind of beacon for, for lack of a better term when it comes hmm. to safety and you throw all the cards up in the air and say figure it out as parents and as professionals and now as uh, pandemic teachers, because I won't use the term homeschooling, because um, this is not homeschooling, um, uh, <laughs> that, that I think that it puts a, a level of stress on, on these families that really has them seeking for any level of clarity that they can find. And so from a leadership standpoint, how uh, I try to um, meet folks where they're at and, and say, here's what we're experiencing as a school community. Um, here's what we know and here's what we don't know. And, and to be able to provide comfort and, and, and a level of strength or trust, even in that unknown, um, is, is really important. So um, finding the ways that we can connect with folks, whether it's social media, uh, a written narrative, a video, uh, uh, an email, a text or whatever, um, becomes that much more important. And then trying to generate some level of a feedback loop mm -hmm. and, and how um, our, our communities can feel like their voices are going to be heard within this is, is important as well. So uh, again, I didn't plan on asking this question. Uh, not that I, I'm planning to, not that many of the questions that I'm asking were planned anyways, because that would be standardization. <laughs> That would be standardization, but sure. where do you think standardization fits in a time like this? I mean, do, do people, do you think, uh, again, when you consider administration, teachers, students, uh, community, do, do they want a playbook written for them or, or do they uh, want to be part of rewriting it uh, themselves? Uh, 
I think that one of the things I've learned a lot through this process is that um, any existing challenges before the pandemic um, for any organization are probably augmented tenfold um, once you kind of move to this. And those, those existing challenges could probably be cultural, they could be structural. Um, and I found that the points where we've faced our, our, some, some key challenges have been around those instances in which standardization was the norm or the expectation where just tell me what to do and I will do it um, (laughs) in lack uh, of any certainty um, is, is a really tricky mentality because, uh, and and Scott, perhaps you've seen the same at at Fairfield and elsewhere. um, Teachers are really well-meaning folks and they will run through a brick wall if you ask them to, but sometimes you have to ask them to. And, um, and, and how do we empower those around us to move beyond just here's the playbook to how can you be the architect of whatever this new normal is going to become? Right. Um, that's really important. And, that, and that's, that's, that's an ongoing challenge, I think, especially when you think about the, the mechanisms by which we're trying to do that in Zoom meetings and, and remote connections. Patrick, could I ask a quick question? Like, how do, yeah. as a leader, uh, how, do you, how do you communicate to rule followers as a rule enforcer yeah. to break the rules that the new rule is now break the rules. Uh, how do you do that? Like how are, I mean, we're having yeah. fun with it, but, but for people who are really intent on doing their job, the way they've been taught to and the way they've been very effective, right. Yeah. To be told, get out of that effective box. Now, this is going to be scary. I'm just curious in your yeah. experience. I mean, I've had challenges with this myself. Um, how are you communicating this, this challenge to, to, to the people you're working with? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, Scott. I think, for me, what has been helpful in, in, in guiding folks along and trying to empower them is to recognize that even though I think historically from now on, we're going to think about things in terms of before COVID and after COVID. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, but I think it's helpful to be able to draw some of our folks' perspectives on what was happening long before this pandemic. Because I think for some folks who are feeling unsettled by all this, they feel like, well, the world just upended you know, in mid-March, whenever we, we shut down through the, the pandemic. So if I can remind them of, hey, here's some of the things that we were working on over the course of the preceding months. And here are the, some of the things as a school community we've been experiencing over the course of preceding years, where um, that growth mindset of adopting a STEAM uh, approach to teaching and learning, or the way that that teacher, you know, really grabbed onto an idea and developed it in his or her own ways, um, to make it meaningful to them. Um, so helping them recognize you've got a track record here of evolving and growing and being nimble in times of adversity. Um, this is a big point in, in, it's an inflection point, but it's not something that is insurmountable by any means. Um, and, and I think that that for me, from a leadership standpoint has been where we try to coalesce around some some community ideals that we feel are most important mm-hmm. and then don't sweat the st- small stuff, try something right. and fail at it and then try something better as informed by that failure. That's okay. Wow. How, how about that question back to yourself, Scott, how have you handled it? <laughs> <laughs> um, essentially with a lot of, I've tried a lot of patience and, and listening for me has been the most effective, right? Because um, you know, when I see somebody stressed out because they can't maintain a certain standard or, or operation that, that has given them great efficiency and effectiveness before as a teacher. 
um, or you just as a person, as a parent, whatever, um, that ultimately we need to give ourselves, not just the people that we're listening to and talk to, we have to give ourselves time to, and Glenn, you and I have talked about this before, to mourn what we've lost. And, and that, that, you know, there's, there's old lectures that I used to love giving that just don't work anymore. And it's okay. But man, I love those lectures. Why not? Right. But being, being able to take a moment to talk that and express that, you know, this does kind of suck because I miss that. I, I kind of like that vibe. I like that, 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 that dependability. I like that routine. It was actually comfortable for me. And, and so I'm missing that. Once we kind of express that, or at least once I've been able to express it for myself, I find all of a sudden those things that are making me cling on to what was are gone. And I have the space to start thinking, okay, so right. If failure isn't really a problem right now and it's more about innovate and a lack of innovation is failure. um, I have the space to do that. So that's kind of how I would, how I would respond to that, Glenn. Thank you, Scott. And and I know that there's a story you told me about one of your textbooks that oh, we'll yeah. get to in a little bit later. So take note okay. of that one, please. So, taken. so, so Patrick, react to the following statement. Knowing something's right isn't enough to start doing what's right. And knowing something's wrong isn't enough to stop doing it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great prompt. And, and I think that it's one of those things that as I try to, at least from a leadership standpoint, or even from a personal standpoint, um, I try to hold closest the things that, that we as a family or as a community feel are right for, for us and, and always moving towards those things. Um, in the instances that we fall short or are too afraid to do that right thing or are too thrown off by the you know, economic variables or whatever else, what are, trying to identify the things that are preventing us from doing those right things is a really neat exercise. Um, because I think that, uh, especially in times like this right now, a lot of people are motivated by fear and that's a, a, a tough spot to be in. And in order to, it's, it's hard to innovate or let go of that lecture that you really loved because mm-hmm. you, you fear that you're never going to get it back. Um, right. and, and you and might not. Yeah, you might not. And, and so I, I think that um, how we build a community together, at least in, in our educational sphere, um, that all recognizes what that right thing is and has the kind of collective strength to mm. do it, uh, even though it, it's going to be challenging, is, is really important. That it can't just be one person out there saying, this is right banging that drum and hoping everybody else is, is going to follow. It has to be um, in, in a collective process, I think. Um, I mean, yeah. Pat, Patrick, if, I mean, one thing you're saying here that kind of circles back to another thing before, and this was, oh, you know, I noticed that when you were talking about your, when you were giving us some advice about how you've been help teaching rule, rule makers and rule followers to be rule breakers, um, you, you're, one of your tasks that I find uh, very effective and, and, and quite stunning is the, the expanding the, the frame of reference, expand, right? So when we're in a particular moment of extreme stress, it's, it's absolutely impossible neurologically to get out of that moment because that's our neurology saying, hold on, major threat, deal with this. Don't think of anything else. You need to get out of this now before any other thought, right? But one, but one of your tactics, which I want to make sure we underline here for everyone to hear, 
is that that what you're saying is we let's let's slow down and let's expand the time frame. Let's not think about this month or this day or this week, but let's think about when I met you six years ago or when you started teaching. Talk to me about how you came up with your first lecture. Uh, these this this idea of expanding the time frame, I think, is a really sharp one that almost went underneath the radar there. But 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 I think it's because you do it naturally, and it goes back to to, to your own personal leadership style, and I think why it's been so effective at St. John's. And so I just wanted to, to, to mention that before I turn it back to Glenn, because yeah. I think that was, there was a little, uh, one of many little uh, shimmering uh, moments of brilliance there. Well, what? I think, you know, to, to that point, Scott, it's, that's actually a, a pretty significant leadership challenge of mine, um, okay. where, you know, Glenn talked about it of, of, of being this momentum igniter or, or anything like that. Um, I always have to recognize that my own, optimal level of discomfort where I can be my most creative or, or most engaged in something might be really different from somebody else's, mm. um, uh, uh, optimal zone of discomfort. And, um, where, where comfort means we're kind of standing still. Um, but you also don't want to be at that red line. Like you talked about Scott of saying, I can't deal with anything else because I'm so freaked out about this singular idea. And so, um, that's, that's a space through, the personalization and the connection with others where I can recognize um, where I might be a gas person, I need to have a brakes person around me. Yeah. And um, where I know the people on my team are around me that are the gas people, I need to make sure that we're all kind of counterbalancing each other. Because when you get three gas people all in one room, yeah. some things could go haywire. And, this is... Um, this is this yeah. is you doing the connectivity thing again. Look at you. You yeah. just can't help it, man. You just connect, you connect, you connect right? Well, well, if, we're, if we're really going to take this to a whole other level of analysis, Scott, is what Patrick so eloquently talked about was we need to know what everybody solves for mm -hmm. and be respectful in recognizing how they solve for it, why they solve for it, and how it might create discomfort how it may bring comfort back into the room. And, and these are things that when it, when it comes to personalization that are so important because it requires us to know who people are as individuals. And what, again, what Patrick so eloquently stated is that sometimes who he is as an individual might get in the way of progress, even though you would think a momentum igniter creates progress but depending upon the people in the room, it might slow progress down. Mm. And this is all about finding that balance between standardization, the one that expects the leader at the top to drive, to not only to drive the train, but uh, to define its path to where we must remove hierarchy and recognize that during times of crisis like these, we must be more mindful of flattening the organization and respecting Patrick's point where people are and what people are, where people are, doesn't mean um, how fast they can be or how slow they are. It's about where their mindset is and what they're actually ready to take on because of the overarching stressors that lie around them that may actually redefine the individual at a time of crisis like mm. this. So I, I'm just getting to that. I wanted to bring that point up because See, I think we've gotten to the core of where this conversation now lies. And so I want to shift now to solutions. Unless, Patrick, did you want to jump in or react to anything? No, Glenn, I expect you're going to give all the solutions. <laughs> no, I don't have it. Hey, look, I just have look, The truth is my job is to reemphasize the solutions of our guests. 
I'm yeah. just repackaging what you already said. <laughs> Thanks. Appreciate it. You're my hype man. <laughs> so uh, before I, I move and start shifting to solutions, um, any last comment on that one, Patrick? Yay, nay? You're good? No, yeah. I think that, you know, I think if it's helpful, my, I feel like, this is okay. Going back to that athlete thing. I, I remember the losses more than I remember the wins. Um, <laughs> and professionally, I feel like I remember and I've grown more from the times where I've misstepped in a lack of personalization <laughs> um, or taking the temperature of those around me um, <laughs> than, than finding those, those, those points of connection. And um, I, I go back to a, a meeting real early on um, with our faculty and, and somebody had raised their hand and asked a really fair and insightful question of, okay, well, what about X, Y, or Z? And my response was natural. And, and I just said, I don't know. And it was, a, awesome. to me, it was an authentic, Hey, I just don't know. Um, yeah. But it was interesting also to then read with that person and others and saying, and, and I had a, a, a staff member come to me and say, wow, they were, they were really, they were really thrown off by that. I don't know. They were expecting an, an answer and a, and a purpose and a drive and all of this. And, and so um, I think that level setting that you have to do within a community um, and especially for those rule followers who just want you to say, here's what I know. Right. Um, when you, when you say something with positive intent and authenticity of just saying, I don't know that that can throw some other people for a loop. And, and I've, I've tried to recognize that in my own style as well. Well, Patrick, here you go with the answers again. What you basically said is we must stop ruling by standardization and start leading with personalization. You're on fire today, Patrick. <laughs> so, let's, so let's take the momentum igniter to another level. Going into solutions, it's clear, just from my own observations of you, uh, Patrick, that your passionate pursuit to forge stronger alignment and deeper, deeper levels of inclusivity throughout the educational delivery ecosystem, it, it's not just bold, uh, it's extraordinarily exciting. Uh, whether that's uh, within or outside academia to advance the totality of the educational experience, especially for these emerging generations of leaders. Can you help us better understand your vision? Because I think it's extraordinarily uh, relevant, uh, especially what we've learned uh, during this crisis, but I think it's going to be what more people expect and they're, they're hoping to expect it from a leader like you. Uh, yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. Um, I, I think for me, from a, a vision or a strategy standpoint, as it relates to um, how to support others and, and cultivate this more personalized approach, um, I, I would say that the, the environment that I'm in right now, I think historically has felt a little bit more hierarchical or um, standardized. And um, it's my job as a head of an, any organization to reflect the, the values of that organization. And those values ideally are being owned and um, shaped by all the members of that, that community. So it could be students, it could be parents, it could be teachers, it could be um, you know, our, our support staff members. And so how we, how we engage each of those constituencies to feel like they're being valued, heard, and understood is, is really important, especially at times like now where the rule book is out. And so creative solutions can come from, you know, uh, uh, an administrative assistant, um, or it could come from the 25 year veteran on that campus. And so, um, 
I want to make sure that we're finding the pathways that all of those voices can be shared through a, a common lens of um, kind of our, our community norms. And, and, and that's really important. So um, finding those instances is, is key. So tell us a little story about uh, a, a student. Any uh, a story you'd like to share on maybe some wisdom that a, a fourth grader or a fifth grader ha has enlightened upon either you or one of your staff members? <laughs> Gosh, um, I have a whole lot of funny stories of things that have gone wrong in student <laughs> Zoom meetings. Never inappropriate, but just hilarious with the things that kids will say. Um, I, I think for me, one of the things that I, I, I brought to, to the school uh, uh, when I came in is um, I start out each day at the front of the school and shake every student's hand as they're coming in through, through the doorways mm. and um, get to know their names, say, hey, nice job at the basketball game last night, or I heard you did really well with your history presentation or whatever it might be. Um, uh, honestly, personally and professionally, that's something that I'm so scared about because I don't know what we will do with handshakes when we come back to campus. Um, but I, one of the things that, that helped me so much um, just uh, a few days ago, I got a note from a student who uh, had shared um, how much she missed that and, and that, that process of, of coming into campus every day where you, um, you know, it's the beginning of the day. So there, everything is, is positive and optimistic and, um, to be able to connect with that smile is is really important. So when she shot me that note and said, you know, I miss our handshakes and, and hope everybody is doing well, um, that meant a lot because that student and I, I would I would never ever take credit for for that action. She's she's a great kid, um, but that student becomes that type of person who values a handshake through the modeling that is happening from the adults around them. And um, and so when somebody says I miss handshakes or um, you know, Mr. McConnell is out there playing volleyball with us at a, at a break or whatever. Um, I, I, I hope that they see that as, as an opportunity to, to model that connection with, with each other. Cause um, people are all worried about kids these days and their heads being down in phones or social media yeah. or whatever else. And they're highly, highly perceptive individuals. And those little moments um, mean a ton across every age level. So that's a, those are the things that I think most fondly on and what I miss most right now of not being on campus. I have a challenge for, uh, for our guest, Glenn. <laughs> I have a challenge here. So, so solution man. All right, Patrick, well, sure. you're, you're telling, we moved to solutions. And again, it's about the connectivity. You went straight to the handshake saying, here's how it happens. Right. Glenn was asking for a story and you were thinking back about how you do that connectivity, right. With your students. And you did the whole morning thing right there. You're like, man, like can't do the handshakes. But I have good news for you. I'm going to bring in some anthropology and I'm going to do what you do to you. Like what yes, you do to your you. faculty, I'm going to do this to you right now. Great. Expand the timeline. All right. <laughs> all right. So here's the timeline. Let's expand it not by just pre pandemic, post pandemic, but let's go pre pre pandemic to when, to why there even is a handshake. Um, there's a lot of sort of cultural history up, up around this, but this is generally a, 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 a human phenomenon across the world. But one of the one of the key theories and uh, that about the handshake and what it's there for is that it actually goes back to a time well before guns and other things when sharp objects like knives were probably pretty much the threat in terms of person to person violence. And that the way that I would run into a stranger in a market in an era well before social media would allow me to research people beforehand is I hold out my hand. 
they hold out their hand, we shake, we realize we're not caring, we can pro progress to, to connect in a way that is positive. So what I'm going to suggest is that if it can, if handshakes can evolve, right? Hmm. From being a, are you going to hurt me? Am I going to hurt you? To a, that's really what you're doing with the kids is the same thing, but it's just grown in terms of its metaphor. Don't you be afraid, right? To, to realize that this is going to evolve even further and the handshake will still exist, but it's going to be up to you to figure out what that handshake is. And I can't wait for you to tell us. <laughs> as soon as I figure it out, I'll share it. Yeah. Well, don't, but do again, follow the advice that you've been given that we hear about. That's so awesome. And that is, you know, uh, think out of the box, right? There is nothing wrong. You can mess up and try a whole bunch of times, but I can tell just by who you are as an educator and as a person, right? That you're going to find it and you won't even need to try to find it. It's just going to happen. So just go with the flow here and just realize your brain's already working on it. And so is your culture. And this will, this too will evolve my dear friend. Appreciate that. I'm glad. Thanks for the support. In fact, would you give him the, the, your, your theoretical perspective on flow when you say go with the flow? Because we've always dealt yeah. with fight or flight, but explain what flow is. So the, the short of it, and, and Glenn, you can kind of do this if I'm going too long here, but ultimately the, the, the short end of it is that uh, biologically, right, we're, we're kind of hardwired to when we're in an era of an, an unknown space, right, whether that's physical or in, inside our own brains, let alone this pandemic thing here. Um, we are hardwired for millions of millions of years, right, as upright walking apes, seven million years to fight the unknown or to flee from it. And that's, I think, as soon as we think about that, we can think of people in our lives that are currently right now fighting this. This doesn't exist. I'm going to go out there. I don't need no mess. And then there's going to be people that flee and they go to their house and they never leave. Most of us are somewhere in between, but we take turns being fighters and fleers. But one thing Glenn and I have discussed is that thanks to not just our biological DNA, but to borrow, the, to, to use a metaphor, our cultural DNA as pretty conscious uh, uh, um, uh, apes, upright walking apes, that we do have our cultural DNA has evolved uh, or created a third option that I don't think we're yet, uh, we're, we're yet, we're not able to accept it yet, or, or uh, at least accept it as okay. And that is flow. And flow isn't running from it. Flow isn't fighting it. But it's literally just giving it time to get to know it, to understand where you are to actually realize that you're not in a regular place, but there might be things that can help you here. There might be things that can hurt you, but don't make assumptions. Find your safety, but flow, and ultimately your environment, as it has done for our species for seven million years, will help us to find the right adaptation to keep us all alive. And that's just not you and me, but it's the generations that you and I will never ever get to meet. Does that help, Glenn? I'm getting shorter with that. No, it's really good. It's good. So. So let, let me give you a, a try to uh, paint this picture in your mind. Imagine a thousand people being asked to do the same thing, be as efficient as possible. And they're all accountable for one particular outcome. And then imagine those same thousand people uh, being given the room to do things on their own terms where the outcome goes well beyond the anticipated or expected result. See, the first is standardization, and the second example is personalization, and what will really be an environment of healthy chaos. The reason I share this is that that's what I actually believe will be part of what's next, 
is, isn't going to be everyone in a straight line, super efficient, all this order. There'll be a lot of healthy chaos, a lot of disorder that would have been very uncomfortable uh, pre-COVID, but post-COVID, it'll be part of what's going to be required. And that's going to be, that's going to require us all to flow a whole lot more in feeling comfortable with that, just a perspective. So anyway, let's move on. Patrick, and we're now talking, now we're going post-COVID right now. Let's think about the future. What, what do you think of this notion that academic institutions need to rethink not just their market, but their mission? I think that I, I'm not 100% on board that it has to be an automatic, that everything is just going to be thrown up in the air for academic institutions. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and I say that as a person who um, very deliberately works in private independent schools. Um, I, I, and I think that there's room for multiple models yep. and, and I appreciate the, the creativity around, for example, the, I, and there's some schools that, that I've seen in my home state, the, the, the public, the public community colleges are shifting their schedule academically to, um, start their classes in the summer at a time when that mm. would never be the case. Mm. Um, because why are we holding on to this old uh, agrarian model of you need to be off for the summer so you can go out and harvest? Um, <laughs> and, and so that I think is, is really neat. Um, but for me, from a, a, a private independent school model, um, one of the things that I really like is that it should be an opportunity for us to further cement our mission. So there's always going to be a reflection on it. And yeah. there should always be a constant reevaluation of why do we do what we do? Um, and, and I think in our purposes right here, um, we're not saying that every child has to go out and go be a rocket scientist. We're just trying to uh, support from the infancy through eighth grade, the habits of learning and, mm-hmm. and how we can do that in, in the best possible ways so that we're opening more doors for our kids than closing them. Um, and, uh, and, and thankfully that's part of the reason why I'm working at the school that I work at, where we are supporting our kids, intellectual growth, their personal growth, their, uh, uh, relationship through faith, um, you name it. And so, um, I don't think it should be a cause for every institution of, of education to, um, uh, change their mission, but it, it certainly is forcing us all to think about what is it that we're doing? Why are we doing it? Um, and in some cases, what's the value proposition of that? And, and how are we making sure that we're justifying the investments that we're asking out of our families on a daily basis? Um, yeah. If you're pure in all those courses, I would hope that we would have uh, people clamoring to, to come in and join. I love that. I love that. Scott, did you want to react to that? Wow, so many things to react to. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, one, the, the, the thing I love the most uh, that I would like to react to and kind of hear how maybe your school's curriculum might be, um, might have already been shifting in that direction because I would feel under your leadership it would be, um, you know, I was talking to Glenn a little bit ago. Is this too early for the textbook thing, Glenn? No, that's perfect All right. timing. So I'm thinking about this is that, you know, I found as, a, as a, a, an anthropology professor that, um, I was kind of getting too routinized and standardized with the textbooks that I was using and, the, and even just the text that I was using, even in my introductory classes that are really perfectly made for that. Um, 
And what I did was I just ditched the textbooks altogether and just started doing like smaller other, a lot of different types of readings. But that worked so well and so much better than the standardized textbook that, yeah. that it was already prepackaged that then I stopped even doing that. And I started giving about 60% of my, my uh, semester's reading list completely to the students. Sometimes mm -hmm. they have to come together and pick an assignment. Sometimes um, each person has to pick something differently and they bring it in. And so our mutual course also becomes an independent course that each person and then sometimes subgroups are following. So yeah. none of us is alone, but all of us are alone and all of us are in small and big groups. And so it kind of messes up the whole thing. That's how I've kind of done what you have suggested we should all do. And I'm curious, what have you seen in your amongst yeah. like your teachers in, in your school? How are other people essentially the metaphor, not the literal McGraw Hill is going to hate us, but uh, <laughs> how, do, how do you, how do you, how are your teachers ditching the textbook, so to speak? Sure. Um, just to, to react quickly with what you're doing. I think one of the beauties of, of what you're doing there is, and you didn't say it, but it was, it was implied and everybody is learning. So you could uh, be textbook, you could be uh, uh, the student bringing his or her own text, uh, uh, reacting some other way. There's measurable and, and real learning and growth that's happening there. Yeah. And um, for us, that's probably been our textbook challenge. Um, and right. as it relates to um, the nature of assessment. And okay, metrics, where, yeah. I, I think, well, or just even assessment of student growth and um, how in, in a lot of schools, um, there's this notion of, okay, you do your Friday spelling test or you have your final exam and it's a sit down, we do this with pen and paper and the teacher is wandering the classroom like a proctor and making sure that everybody has academic integrity. When you can't wander the classroom and make sure that everyone has academic integrity anymore because we're all on Zooms, how are we measuring typical student growth um, yeah. that used to be in that exam, midterm, uh, uh, spelling test, whatever it might be. And I think that that's been one of the really neat opportunities here mm. for our faculty um, is to embrace the options for choice for um, saying, hey, you know, we're all reading uh, Huck Finn right now. Um, how do you want to demonstrate your mastery of the material? Mm, One yeah. kid might say, I want to write a paper. Another will say, um, I want to do a presentation to the class. Another might say, um, you know what, I'm really artsy. I want to kind of do a, an interpretive art piece as it relates to some of the themings cool. of these things. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I think that that for us has been the space that we've been wrestling with um, uh, the, the kind of the textbook question of how do we abandon the things that we as, as adults grew up with and mm -hmm. that was the way that schools were um, to evolve to being in a student-centric experience and recognizing mm -hmm. that uh, mastery or understanding of, of course material doesn't always come out on a Scantron at the end of the semester yeah. but through uh, ongoing ways that we can do some really neat formative assessment and what that, the, the kind of the ways that you pull that out onto grades, report cards, mm. parent teacher conferences, all of these things that the implications of it are massive. And um, I found that this situation has served as an accelerant for that long mm. simmering conversation. Patrick, what do your students look like uh, 20 years from now? that have experienced this sort of assessment or this sort of metric that is so different from what you and I grew up with in Glenn? I like to hope that, that it's, it's hard at times to measure. I like to hope that they're more empathetic people. 
Um, I don't Beautiful. want one of our kids to ever grow up and say, man, I'm not good at math. Um, can you explain, I'm not a math person. Can you explain how that happens? How does give, have it, because you're still saying yeah. we're doing metrics, yep. we're, st we're doing assessment, we're seeing if yep. what we're doing is actually causing an impact or leading to an impact. So you're still yep. measuring, but you're basically saying that the new game plan, right? The new, the new, the new strategy book is not a directive, but it's a big assortment of options. Sure. And one of them might be other, right? Mm -hmm. um, so if this is, if let's, assent, let's assume, let's pretend that that's the way it is right now, that the, the post-pandemic, that's where we're at. And, and at your school as a, a leading innovator, you found a way to do that. Um, how does that lead to an empathetic soul mm -hmm. that will carry that with them for mm -hmm. 40 to 80 more years? Sure. I think because at some point, when that person was a student at St. John's, they realized that the adult in the room looked at them and said, how do you want to engage with this material? Not how do I want you to engage with this material, but how do you want to and demonstrate your own understanding? Um, and my hope is that that connection with that adult, um, sorry, buzzword, um, and, but allows them to kind of grow up and say, I, I want to, feel those genuine connections with others and not say that you have to fit into this box of this is how we measure this, but show me how you can do your job, uh, be a part of this team in the ways that are unique to you. Um, uh, that's, those are the seeds that we're trying to plant right now. Um, and, and I hope, like you said, in, in 30 years from now, um, that empathy of being able to recognize where others are for who they are and not what they're not or how they're performing against some standardized uh, uh, measure is, is going to make for a, a better and more happy and more collaborative world. Wow, boy, this is a powerful discussion. And it's nice to just listen. And uh, <laughs> no, really, because uh, these are the thing, these are the types of conversations that um, we need to have more of. Um, because it's so easy to fall back on the things that we're comfortable with. And one of the things that I wanted to mention to you, Patrick, and you can already tell uh, from this, you'll, you'll get a, have a greater respect uh, of his humility. But that book that he threw out was the book that he wrote. So that tells you how much. I was one of the people. <laughs> one of three. Yeah. I was on a team. <laughs> um, you knew it anyway. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I, I, I think that's but I think that's very telling because people always want to hold on to what made them relevant in the past for the future. And in this case, what Scott is saying is that he wants to learn uh, from those uh, from, from a different lens because his lens maybe uh, became outdated, even though it really didn't, if you know what I mean. Well, Glenn and Patrick, you want to know one thing I've noticed in terms of my relationships, talking about connectivity, because if education is a way to connect, let's remember, we're not trying to educate, we're trying to connect. That's the first, that's the real goal. Education is the tool. Um, one thing I've noticed by, by taking this approach that, that you're fostering at St. John's is that um, as soon as I kind of stop doing my stuff and using my past and my stories and my books and my articles and my stuff in the classroom, the more students were talking to me like a person as opposed to an authority, the more they were willing to offer up their own ideas. Whereas before, uh, I, without even me knowing it, I was instructing them to defer. I am the expert. I literally wrote the book, so you better read it. And I'll know if you didn't. 
um, that changed the whole demeanor and it really has reinvigorated. I've always been a, 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 a person that loved teaching just like you, even, even when you didn't know you were doing it. But I tell you what, I love it a lot more now and it's a lot more fun. And I feel like I've, I could have had a lot more fun in my career if somebody would have helped me with this earlier on. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. That's a, that's a huge point of just finding those genuine points and letting go of that control and, and embracing the flow that you discussed earlier. That, that, that helps all of that facilitate so much more smoothly. So Patrick, what do you think, and we're going to start wrapping up, um, is what, what do you think about these terms uh, that have become very uh, popular in corporate America, unlearning and upskilling? I don't know if those terms are used in academia. <laughs> But given what, based upon what you know now, yeah, what do you think about those terms? Um, you know, unlearning specifically just rankles me uh, <laughs> only because I, I recognize that it, it, it's pointing to this notion of standard, standardization in a person's past or the way in which schools <laughs> or, or other things kind of operate. Yeah. Um, but, but I feel like you you don't necessarily want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And part of when we say you're unlearning something, um, I, I think it's important to recognize, no, I learned that. And here is how I have continued to grow in these ways. And from a school standpoint, um, uh, along with those empathetic skills that we discussed earlier, I want to create uh, and support a student body that enjoys the process of learning. And yes. so I might, I might say, hey, that's what I thought back six years ago, God knows for me, I know what I thought in my twenties and there's things that I certainly have yeah. tried to move beyond, uh, in, in those ways, uh, now as an adult. So, um, uh, I recognize that, that pushback against standardization and I appreciate that, but I also don't want to lose sight of why we learned that in the first place and how we can grow. From it. Agreed. Cause that's an, see, it's funny you say that because unlearning is an example of practicing, uh, uh, per, uh, standardization in the extreme. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In, in, in almost viewing personalization in the extreme when these are just part of natural points of one's evolution and you can't stop uh, making me think about things I've learned in the past. It's how do I evolve from that and recognize yeah. that I can now make it my own. Maybe not the way you taught me, but I am now uh, taking ownership of that learning in a different way. So I completely agree with you. So uh, Patrick, uh, as you think about the future, what kind of traps do you want academia to avoid? Mm. Wow, that's a good question. Um, and, and so let me, let me maybe give you a little bit more context. And, and sure. Scott and I were, were talking about this. In fact, Scott, I may just volley it back to you. He, he had mentioned uh, during, a, during our preparation call uh, for today, that there are many universities that uh, just won't exist anymore. And there's many uh, institu academic institutions that are reinventing themselves. But what he is noticing, and Scott, after I'm been mentioning this, I'm going to volley it to you, that uh, as they're reinventing themselves, they're reinventing themselves with the same approaches that got them into this mess to begin with. Scott? <laughs> You're right, right. I think um, one thing that we've talked about before, Glenn, right, is the, the whole learning standardization or at least understanding it uh, or personalization is a good thing. But then we have to be careful that we really practice what we want to learn and do because oftentimes our first instinct is going to be to, to take a standardized approach to personalizing. 
right? And so, so, so I think that's a, a, a key piece here is that um, when we go back to those, that assessment, right, Patrick, that you're talking about, that we're going to have our biggest challenges, I think, not with innovation in terms of connecting with students and providing information and hearing information synthesis, right? We need to help teach them to ask good questions, to seek out answers, to, to play with those, that information, and then to synthesize it and put it back out, right? That's, that's kind of what we're up to. But um, this, that I think we're going to get. And I think I see a lot of professors, I see a lot of teachers and just people doing that. What I think is going to get us in trouble, and tell me if you think this is right, is that we're going to have all this innovation in terms of our pedagogy, in terms of reaching students and connecting. But the mistake that's going to possibly happen is that we're going to think we're doing something different uh, in terms of our assessment. But literally, all we're going to do with our assessment and our metrics is we're going to continue to measure things that are back in the age of standardization that will completely diffuse or at least decenter everything that we tried to accomplish. Um, I don't know. I'm kind of mumbling. Help me out. <laughs> Help me out, teacher. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I definitely, I definitely see that. Um, because I wonder in, in a lot of ways, if we were to um, kind of wipe the educational uh, uh, slate clean right now, what would a school look like if we built it from the ground up? And I, and I, and I think that, or, or an institution of higher ed, uh, like Fairfield, um, because I believe it's folks natural tendency to go back to what they know or they experienced. I, it's part of our jobs as leaders in schools, um, because generally speaking, all of our customers have some opinion because of based on what they experienced in their own schooling. And so yeah. sometimes that projection out of, well, this is what I had at my university, therefore Fairfield should be doing this. And how yeah. as, a in, as an institution, how you recognize that, value that personalized viewpoint, but also say, yes, and we're here doing this yes. and, and finding those connection points in which that's, that's really valuable. And so um, <laughs> I, I think that that pitfall that we're talking about here is through all of these leaps that we're, we're required to make right now, living in, in COVID and, and, and beyond, to not let the whiplash of this seeking of normalcy bring us back to, to square one where we started with, which, <laughs> at least in our case, is not bad by any means. Right. But I don't want to lose all the great lessons that we're, we're coming at from, from this, this experience. And if that has pushed forward the conversation around the nature of assessment, the ways in which kids learn um, differently or remotely. Um, heck, even simple things like the starting time of our day where yeah. our elementary kids are starting school these days at nine o'clock. Am I really that eager to get them back to, to starting at 7.30 or eight? Because my kid is happy as a clam sleeping in for an extra hour. Like yeah. that's brain-based research that we're able to pilot right now. Um, yeah. and, uh, and making sure that we're, valuing the experiences of our community to say um, what we're learning through all of this, um, this seeking of uh, uh, clarity or normalcy in, in these uncertain times, which I understand schools can provide for, for a lot of families. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but gosh, we're, we're shooting ourselves in the foot if we don't yeah. implement the lessons learned through all of this and just only try to get back to whatever was normal or standardized prior. You know what, Patrick, oh, yeah. I'd, lo I'd love to end the conversation now, but I'm going to ask you one final question. Sure. How was this experience? What do you walk away from this? This chat itself? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Um, 
Well, I knew I would like Scott uh, 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 from the onset based on what you had shared with me. Um, also knowing a little bit about Fairfield, um, you asked earlier on what kind of made me want to become a teacher. Um, I oftentimes credit uh, going to a Jesuit high school. So um, uh, the Jesuits uh, <laughs> were instrumental and in, in, uh, in my own personal and educational growth. So uh, I always have a, a great deal of respect for anybody from a, a Jesuit institution uh, uh, like Fairfield. Um, but I think there's an importance about talking about the big issues and, and mm -hmm. to recognize that um, wrestling with these things in, in real ways um, is not just sitting back and um, uh, philosophizing on, on these ideals, but it's helping me personally as, as, a, as an educator step out of my own space and think about things more globally. That from a leadership perspective is really important. Connecting with other people in a similar field, but a different context um, is, is really worthwhile. And um, uh, uh, like I said earlier, we have to find these ways to fill our own buckets personally or intellectually or professionally, um, because that's going to help us go out there and be better employees, dads, and, and husbands too. So um, that's, that's one of the big things I'm going to walk away from this is probably hang up the phone here and go out and play with my kids, but do so with a really big smile on my face. <laughs> Sweet. Well, Patrick, I can't yeah. uh, thank you enough uh, for taking the time. I, I know we've gone a little bit longer than expected, but my goodness, what always a, worth it with you, Glenn. What a great conversation, Patrick. Uh, yeah, I, I hope that everybody uh, not only learned from you, but uh, have learned uh, what it means to to speak uh, through authenticity, uh, through a level of empathy, and this desire of connectedness that brings greater alignment uh, amongst all of us. And and that's what I felt uh, from the call. And uh, I, I tell you, this is. Uh, this is a conversation that uh, not only will I remember, but we're certainly going to share it and make sure that other leaders across academia uh, will embrace uh, as they think about the future as well. Scott, any parting thoughts? Just want to, again, I want to do a Mr. Rogers thing and kind of remind us what happened just here, right? Um, before, we, before we take the sweater back off and head out, right? Um, and that is, Patrick, man, uh, one thing that, that was besides the connectivity, the thing that was under that was underneath everything that you've been saying, no matter what we were talking about. Um, and, it, and, it, and I'm talking about this because I think it's a good way for us to leave thinking about our metrics and our measuring, right? And that is, you showed that you personally, as an academic leader, value process over product. Meaning what, what, what we have been measuring all along, not just in corporate USA, but also in academia, has always been outcome or product. Can they do this? Can they do that? Are they right? So, and, and we, we, we go through workshops, even as people in the school for 40 years or teaching for 40 years, they're still being workshopped about measure. And this is how you measure better. This is how you measure better. But it's always focusing on outcome or the product. Hmm. What you're helping us to, 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 to understand in a whole new way is that we need to be careful of that because really we might get better product if we focus more on the metrics of process and that process is what connectivity and what's one way to connect education thank you for what you do my brother oh my goodness anyway it's, so it's, I'm, I'm out it's up to you no, I love it. <laughs> all right guys well listen thank you again patrick uh we'll be in touch and thank you so much for your time awesome thank you guys so much thanks really dude Have a thank time. you Bye. Right on, thanks, man. Guys. thanks for listening to personalization outbreak 
Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution.